I'm worried. I have two sleeping children directly under me and I don't have a bedroom door. It's a long story. Lady Catlin of the British Isles. Hello. How are you doing today on a Friday? Oh. I'm glad it's Friday and it's, yep. it's 8.30 here, so it's properly Friday night. And I am definitely having that Friday feeling. There's a lot of chatter in the London area regarding lockdowns and such. How are you handling it out there? Well, apparently Monday will be, you know, a real milestone, a real... um lifting will be allowed to hug they say which is nice (laughs) and uh restaurants and pubs will open again for dining indoors but yeah we've been pretty locked down tight for well since january we had sort of the first proper lockdown in march through i'll say august last year and then it loosened up and then november they were like hmm let's just do a real quick like four week lockdown just to just to get things ship shape before Christmas. Just cause. Yeah. They dangled Christmas in front of us. Like, don't worry. Like Christmas, you can all, you can just like slobber all over your family. It's fine. <laughs> so it was, you know, in like hindsight, it was so transparent. They just wanted us to spend all of our money on Christmas to save the goddamn economy. And I'll be fucked if it didn't work because um, they, uh, they locked us down all through November then like maybe we had a week and a half in December to spend all that money. And then they're like, sorry, guys, Christmas is canceled. Second wave. It's the original so, British holiday, you know. I mean, they take it seriously out here. Yeah, for so sure. Then, so then after Christmas, it was like, all right, well, you know, come January, the kids will be back in school. Um, we can, you know, I'll start exercising again. Uh, we won't be locked down. And then they were like, no, actually, the kids can't go back to school and um, nothing's open. And you all have to go back in your house for what was like an interminable, wet, gray winter. Yeah, there was like just a collective seasonal affective disorder. January, February, March of this year. But now it's just, you know, we had like the full spring in, in April. We had like six consecutive days of sunshine in April. And that's when everyone in the United Kingdom loses their mind and like starts wearing shorts and putting on sunscreen for no reason. Um, oh, yeah. Take advantage, right? Yeah. And like is outside getting drunk, having picnics. Uh, yeah. But now it's been rainy again. <laughs> So we're just, we're, you know, we're biding our time, but they, they they keep projecting that the end of social distancing will be the 21st June, which is, it feels too good to be true. So we'll see what happens, but uh, apparently we can all start dining indoors from Monday the 17th and we can have um, six people or two different households mix indoors, which feels downright decadent. And um 
you know, I'm, I'm just excited to go to a restaurant. Yeah. I hear you there. CDC just released guidelines. I think yesterday that if you're fully vaccinated, you can go outside without a mask, but they didn't offer any guidance on, well, what if you're not vaccinated? How do you know? Do you have to show your vaccination card? Does that violate electronic health records and privacy laws? And so all of it is a cluster because anybody that wasn't vaccinated is like, all right, pandemic's over. We're free to go back to our lives. Uh, And you're starting to see it just percolate all over. You know, the U.S. is a big country, so you got millions of opinions, but it's just like the Centers for Disease Control, which it's in the name. You should know this. Yeah. It's not any better over here. How, but it's so disjointed. What I can't wrap my head around in the States, talking to my parents who are in Virginia, the D.C. area. They're just outside of Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia. And my brother, who's in Los Angeles. So, so are like, so you're in Arizona. Can you go to a restaurant indoors right now? Yeah. With a mask on? So, yeah. You have to wear a mask when you're like going to the toilet and stuff. Well, no, yeah, even then, basically you walk in, make sure you have a mask walking through the door and then make sure you have a mask on when they seat you. But once you're seated, it's like, okay, well, I need to take this thing off to eat. And, you know, if you cough or you sneeze, you'll get kind of side eye glares. But other than that, it's like, well, you wore a mask walking in. So if we have cameras, we have you complying or they just try and stick everybody outside, which in Arizona in March and April, it is the most phenomenal weather ever. Yesterday we cracked 102 and I think we're set to crack a hundred again today. So if you're going for breakfast again, beautiful. And if you're going out at night, it's 80 at night and it's wonderful. But in the center of the day, one o'clock, two o'clock, why would you want to be outside? And it's only going to get worse. We're, we're running into our reverse winter here in the desert where nobody goes outside in July and August. Wow. Uh, and that's the way we think of it is everything goes into hibernation. All the plants die, all the insects go underground. You can't see any birds. You know, everything happens till about 11 o'clock. And then from 11 o'clock to about five-ish, it's like Proper that scene siesta. from the, yeah, it's like the scene from the Vin Diesel movie where the sun turns and the planet melts and then everything <laughs> kind of no, comes back Vin to Diesel life. What Vin Diesel movie the, is that? Ah, one of his Riddick movies where he's wearing those black glasses. That's the joke that I get from my brother-in-law is the planet's called crematoria because that's what it is. And that's Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. And my buddy in San Francisco is like, you live on the surface of the sun. And yeah, for for about 10 weeks. Yeah, Yeah. it is. um, That is unimaginable to me. For sure. spent the last 12 years in a place where, yeah, there's, it just rains just rain. There's just rain. And then there isn't rain. And then, like I said, people probably lose their minds and then there's rain again. And then you're like, oh, why did I, why did I get caught out? Why did I, why was I such so foolish? But no, we've got, we've got like six good days, 10 good days between July and August that we're all looking forward to. Okay. All right. So note <laughs> to self, when it sucks out here, go to the Come UK. Here. That's fine. As long as you get some kind of balance, there's, you know, in this new work from home world where if you have the internet connection, you have a job. There are a lot of people here that are like, yeah, we're just going to lock up the house and, and turn the security system on and we're going to go somewhere else. So if you have, yeah. If you have the ability to go up the mountain to Flagstaff or go back to California or wherever it is you came from, so there's tons of snowbirds here. It's like, don't, don't be here. It's completely acceptable. 
I think that's, I, th I don't think that will change. I think, I think that um, is something that will stay with us on the back of this, which I think is absolutely welcome. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there was this real, it's been, it's been a, a wave that March last year, it was inconceivable, right? Like how can people work from home? It can't be done. And then somewhere in like summer, August, September, it was like, we will only work from home. This is the way forward. And now I think we're all getting a little sick of it. And everyone's kind of come to like, we should definitely find a hybrid situation whereby we half the week work from home and half the week get away from our family and work in an office. Yep. I am willing to put pants on to not be yeah. home all day, every day. Yeah. And that's kind of what it's turning out to be. But not 40 hours a week. I will never get on a train into London five days a week again. I will never do it. It'll be very difficult for people to say you need to come back five days a week because you have to really justify the work that you're doing. You just went without an office. So now the office needs to be a benefit. So what's the yeah. benefit of the office? Anyway, what's your brown for this evening, madam? Oh, my goodness. Well, now I'm upset because I'm almost done with it. And there's two sleeping children between me and my kitchen. Um, I was inspired by your recent episode with Justin and I made myself an old fashioned. Oh. oh. And I spent yeah, proper my, time on it. On my list and for I'm, him is Pim's Cup. Yeah, Pim's. That's right. I laughed out loud when he was talking about Pim's because it's very, it's very innocuous. You drink it like iced tea over here. They don't have iced tea over here. It's weird. And it's, and it's a, it's a joy that I haven't, that I've forgotten in my life. Cause I, cause now I haven't been to the States since 2018, maybe. Um, oh, did we go summer 19, summer 19, I guess we were there in Maine, um, with my mother's family, but, but it's a long time. It's been a long time. And I haven't been back to Los Angeles since my parents moved. I haven't been back to Los Angeles in years and years and years. Um, but, but they don't believe in the concept of taking tea and putting ice in it? <laughs> no, you cannot get an iced tea. I don't know where I would look for an iced tea. In 2021, I don't know where I would look for an iced tea in, in the UK. I, mean, I understand that I'd there like are some odd customs out here in the United States kind of as a, <laughs> a paragon of weirdness, but it seems like just putting ice on something. I mean, they drink warm beer. <laughs> well, I like to credit myself as the reason that iced coffee took off here. When I moved to the United Kingdom in late 20, uh, 2008, I vividly remember having a conversation one summer at a at a, a restaurant, you know, being like, do you have iced coffee? And then being like, no. And me being like, mm, do you have coffee? <laughs> like, yes. Do you have ice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And being like, look, I will give you, like, take my money. If you want to be cold, love, go on outside. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I will give you three pounds 50 <laughs> if you just put that coffee on ice. Let me tell you, it will revolutionize your business and people will want to drink it. And slowly but surely, iced coffee has, has infiltrated the UK. But iced tea, I don't know, man. Mm. They're not, they take it as a personal, they, they're personally offended by it. <laughs> he is rather sacred, yeah. Well, could be your next side quest. <laughs> but good for you. Old fashioned is a very, very good drink. On yeah. last night's Brown Bulletin, we were drinking Knob Creek single mm. barrel. 
And I know that you're a a bourbon lady. So we went on a deep Mm. dive with bourbon because my co-host used to live in Ohio and that was all he had access to. And so I was like, well, I'm a scotch drinker. He goes, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. But are we going to, are we going to play around with, and and it took me a couple of weeks to get him to go, yeah, maybe we should do mezcal or, or maybe we should play around with some of the others. And I'm yeah. trying to get him off the fence, but he was, he was Northern Kentucky all the way. I come by it. Honestly, my mother's from Cincinnati, which is just over the river from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I never noticed this, but there was, there must've always been bourbon in the house. Cause my mother bourbon and, 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 Soda is a drink that she and her family drinks. <laughs> they're very, they're like old school, proper old school. Five o'clock is cocktail hour. Hmm. My parents have like always mint been juleps and shit. And I mean, not that crazy. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but because, well, I mean, shit. We should get into that. Um, no, they drank a lot of wine, my folks. But there was always, yeah, like a spirit. It always started with a spirit come come five six o'clock on a weekend because i never saw my dad much during the week he was like very much a gone at 7 a.m back at 7 30 p.m type dad in a suit situation when i was growing up but, california commuter right yeah yeah, yeah. my dad was the same way. yeah well shit for a while he commuted up to silicon valley in the in the in the 90s heyday of the dot-com bubble he would leave on a Monday morning and come back on a Thursday night and stay up oh. in San Jose. Yeah. At, at like at the extended, extended stay suites or whatever, something sad like that. Leaving my mom to do all the dirty work with two teenagers. <laughs> I finished my drink. But what do I do? Well, you gave me a lot of good talking points here. We've kind of been rattling off on them. Uh, yeah. It doesn't require you to drink a lot, just that you have your drink. Well, first of all, my drink was Sonoma bourbon. Has have you, has this ever crossed your go on your fantasy league? It's it's a it's I think they claim to be the only whiskey distillery, the first, maybe not the only, but the first whiskey distillery in California. Sonoma bourbon. And um I think it's quite nice. It's I, and it's sweet. My Dunstan, my Dunstan, my husband bought it for me because it's from California, uh-huh. which is nice. But it's not. I, I would standard kind of have just a bottle of Maker's Mark around. That's a good quick, like drink it type of whiskey, bourbon. Excuse me. Um, when I'm feeling fancy, or if someone gifts me a bottle, I'll ask for Blanton's mm-hmm. one with the horse. Yep. That's a good one. Knob Creek is a is a is a respectable bourbon. I could drink that pretty easily. The best bourbon I ever had when I worked at a restaurant after I spent a, I spent a year in Santa Barbara after school, and then I moved back to my parents' house in the valley, and I got a job at a restaurant. And the, the closest to a drinking problem I ever got was when I worked behind the bar <laughs> at a at a restaurant in the valley and uh but before i was hostessing before i got behind the bar and the the proper bartender um took took me aside one night and i was like yeah i drink bourbon thinking (laughs) i was hot shit when really i like you know could drink manhattan on the rocks and like maybe some maker's mark with plenty of soda and he and he poured me a shot of this bourbon called booker's booker's Mm -hmm. bourbon and he's like this 
you like bourbon drink this and um i've never been able to get it out here but it's because it's ridiculously expensive but that i remember that being like damn that's good bourbon booker's bourbon so we just recently discovered bottled and bond do you know what that is say it again bottled in bond no, bottles and bo- bottled and bond. Bottled and bond is a type of bourbon that typically has a higher alcohol content. It can't go above 80%, otherwise it's not bourbon. It has to be 51% corn it's or lighter more. fluid. Otherwise it's not bourbon. It has to be produced in the United States, otherwise it's not bourbon. Right. But if it's bottled in bond, it's got to be aged a minimum of four years. Nice. And so the one that I found was Old Forester. And that one is, okay. is growing on me as... Uh, as an interesting spirit of choice, but I, I bounced around. I had to get 16 different bottles for this little bracket that he made me do, which was fun. I mean, it was, yeah. it was uh, March madness themed and we had a good time with it. Yeah. And uh, he's a Buffalo trace hound. He might as well be a, a sponsor. Mm, poster boy. Yeah. For it. No, Buffalo trace is good. I hear that. Oh, and yeah. Eagles rare. I know Eagles Eagle, rare has come Eagle up. Eagle rare is oof, like That's butter. A good one. Uh, but, you know, we like to move things around. So um, Justin turned me on to Mezcal. So I, I tried Mezcal mm. at his behest, and I really, really like it. Gosh. So I, I have I, I, tequila now, and it feels like you're slumming. <laughs> we should get into Mezcal. That's a, bit, that's a good summer um, ex- expedition for us. I'm lucky in that I married a man who enjoys food and drink. Mm-hmm. That's probably why I married him. He's He um, is a a bit of a wino. He likes, he knows a lot and he like researches a lot and buys a lot of wine. So we drink a lot of wine generally. Um, but he knows his booze too. So mezcal might be a good addition. I'll tell you in the summer, I went to Spain to visit. As you do in the United States. Do. do you remember I, my roommate in college was Jody? Do you remember Jody? Do you remember so. me, Jody? Yeah. yeah. She was around senior year. She studied abroad junior year when I lived in the madhouse with Justin and Jared. Champagne room. Yeah. Um, but she now lives in Girona, Spain. And uh, and I went to visit her. God, that must have been autumn 19. I just figure everything happened in autumn 19 before the world ended. Um, I was very lucky. My husband watched the kids for a long weekend and I got to bounce over to visit her and vermouth vermouth on ice that's your summer Hmm. drink i'm excited to get some like white vermouth or some um yeah white vermouth on ice with a twist of lemon does that have any alcohol in it just a breeze but it's an aperitif you know it's it's a day drink yeah like uh, aperol or or one of our segments coming up is going to talk about amaro which i guess is an italian yes yes sure yeah. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. I could go on. Go on. It's a, it's a starter. It's a it's a get into it type type of beverage. It's a pim's cup, if you will. Mm. Um glorious pim's cup. We do drink a lot of wine. Are you a wine drinker? Yeah, we do red. Um my wife dabbles in white. And <laughs> don't uh, we all? For the most part. Yeah, I just you know, wine is wine is fun. Uh, at the Costco down here, they have these gigantic bottles of sangria. Uh, which if you're in Spain and you didn't have sangria, you're missing out, but they're, they're big Magnum bottles. And of course it's Costco. So $7. So you get $7 of this gigantic kind of um, it's, it's like 
Jungle Juice for rookies. Yeah, it's a mixture. Well, I'm I'm not finished yet. Okay. It's a mixture of fruit juice and wine, and if you pour it in a glass with ice, you could literally drink the entire bottle yourself. And it's Costco, so of course you buy in bulk, and it's really thoroughly enjoyable. Now, homemade sangria, uh, Mm. to your point, is superior. Yes. But when all you want to do is sit down, pour something out of a bottle, and immediately enjoy it. You don't have to get into mixing and and acrobatics and portion control and all that. So I, I love that you made made yourself an old fashioned. Good on you, sister. Yeah. But sometimes you just you need to pour it <laughs> and drink it and drink it, and that's it. So the simplicity in life. That's one of the reasons that I kind of gravitated towards uh, towards whiskey was it was just it was easy. Yeah. You know, we used to talk about the the whole purpose of the of the brown ethos is what's your drink like when you come rolling into the room somebody sees you they go get him a uh, whatever you know and you could say uh, long island iced tea or for a while it was a i had a vodka gimlet that was my thing mm. i bounced to a seven and seven i had a phase mm. a brief flirtation with rusty nails <laughs> um, what's that what's a rusty nail Oh, I'll have to look it up. Um, I just I remember the name and I remember it was it was caustic because you would say that to the bartender and the bartender would go, all right, you. all right, all right, I can dust off one of these. Yeah, like this here. is going to take me 12 minutes. Like I, I remember that in bartender school, but I haven't yeah. served it to anybody ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you want something that's um, rolls off the tongue. It's catchy. Rusty no, uh, rusty nail, salty dog. There's a couple of weird ones like that where it's like, yeah, give me one of these. And the bartender goes, I haven't made one of those in a while. I'm yeah. an aristocrat. Um, but any anything. I, lo- I like a champagne simple. cocktail. Yeah, I mean, you uh, a red wine spritzer because we have one of those soda streams. So oh. if you put the soda stream together and you mix soda stream and red wine, and then maybe you put a little ice in it, and that also is simple and. Well, you put. A I'm struggling for the word. Lemon. You put a slice of lemon and some brandy in that, and you've got sangria. You've made your own sangria. The lady has educated me for the first time today. Uh, but yeah, that's you know whatever, whatever, whatever floats your boat, suits your fancy. <laughs> There's a variety of different cocktails we play around with. All right, here's the question. How often do you drink? Oh, how, how often do you drink alcohol? A day. A week? It was every night for a while. Uh, I'm trying to cut back and I'm trying to make it Thursday through Saturday. <laughs> That's great. Yes, I agree. I agree. Because that was kind of our, I don't want to say that was our, our college rigmarole but that was basically the idea is you know during the week you got shit to do uh but for a while i i didn't have shit to do and i still don't really have shit to do i'm i'm pursuing passion projects so to speak um good for you yeah you try and stay away from doing it during the day because that just leads to problems and i never drink in front of the kids uh at least i should say i never drink whiskey in front of the kids (laughs) Like uh, we got White Claws and Trulies and we've got the Bud Light seltzers. And that's just, that's nice. That's a little bit of sugar and carbonated water. There's nothing there. So you can sit down and have one of those. And those are really refreshing. What I had. Mm. The Bud Light seltzer, Black it. Cherry. 
Yeah. Bam. Yum. Stop at three. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I want to I want to put the caveat on that. Not three because of the alcohol content, but whatever they're putting in there is like a sugar substitute. It's the quinine yeah. or, or whatever Aspartame. mysterious ingredient. Yeah, whatever it is, it kind of it starts to like rotate your neck forward on your head. <laughs> and at some point you're just like, I don't, I don't like how I feel right now. And it's not because of the alcohol. No, it's it's like a chemical reaction, like formaldehyde or something. So stop at three. <laughs> Um, move on to something else, but you know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to sit down and have three drinks, it's an event. You don't, Mm -hmm. don't have three drinks by yourself. Um, what about you as a, as a mom of two in a foreign land? Jeez. Well, look, I didn't drink gin until I moved here. Ah, gin. Gin's on my list. In certain circles, the gin and tonic is like a seven up over here. (laughs) Like, you just you just have a gin and tonic because you're a little bit arched. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, gin seems out. like a uniquely British drink. You've got Bombay, you've got Beef Eater, Gordon's. Yeah, Gordon's, of course, Gordon's. There's James some Bond great drinks, Gordon's. there's some great gin over here. I certainly wouldn't have been educated on like um, you know the luxury uh, gins in the states, but there's a gin called the Botanist. I mean, yeah, they get serious into their gin. Um, over here. Well, in Europe in general, I would say the gin and tonic is very uh, continental, continentally revered starter drink. Like, and so I, that time when I was almost an alcoholic, when I worked behind a bar, um, a, a daytime, I will caveat and say I wasn't an actual bartender. I was like a lunchtime bartender. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to actually serve. But not a, not a bar back. Like you actually serve drinks. Yeah, but like okay. basically I made cappuccinos. I made cappuccinos and like if someone was a day drinker, they'd come and sit down and I'd fuck up some martinis for them. But okay. right. I poured wine and made cappuccinos at a at a French restaurant in the valley. That was my that was my brush with um uh, bartending. But it did make me appreciate uh the finer liquors. Well, cause because once you make like a shitty well vodka cranberry you understand that you will never order a vodka cranberry anywhere because mm-hmm. it's like the worst quality you know bottom barrel vodka with you know cranberry essence flavored essence sugar drink like they don't even call it juice they're like cranberry beverage <laughs> and you're and you're and you're like sticking that out of a pouch into a barrel and then putting mm. a hose in it and being like this is my cranberry juice. So so working behind a bar it definitely gave me the education I needed to be like eesh I'm not going to spend 8 dollars on a shitty vodka tonic or a shitty vodka soda. I might as well just spend 10 dollars on like a shot of really good vodka. Mhm. And so, so from there, <laughs> I, I started drinking neat liquor and that was a bad look in my early mid twenties. And I kind of had to have a word with myself, but, but, but then I got a real job and I, I, um, that sort of took care of itself. Let it slow it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of, that's well, it's interesting that you say a, a proper vodka because I had, uh, in my in my travels with my day job, I, I ran into a number of Europeans who I still keep in touch with over social media. And one of them was uh, Michael from Denmark, 
And mm. Michael's territory was all of Scandinavia and Russia. So he was required to go to Russia at regular intervals. And he would go to, you know, Russia proper, but then he would go to all the former Soviet blocs. And one of his favorite ones was Belarus. And he always talked about mm. going to Belarus because, uh, one, the women there were fantastic. He says it's probably the most beautiful place. You know, they talk a lot about Kiev, but go to just Belarus, period. All of Belarus. Nice. And then he gave me a very interesting tutorial on vodka one night. And he said, um, he said, Dana, tell me, how many times does American vodka filter? And I ah. said, I don't know. I think the, the popular ones say six or eight times. And he's like, oh, yeah. this is the problem. All right, Michael, lay it on me. Tell me. And he said some of them like, uh, like Beluga, like the company that does caviar, they make a vodka that apparently is filtered 600 times. <laughs> and Jesus. the, and I can't, I haven't verified this. I haven't done any independent field study on this, but the idea is <laughs> a proper Russian vodka that's filtered 600 or 800 times has no hangover wow. because it is in the purest most yeah. genuine form of alcohol. And then the thing with the Russians that they do, which I thought was really interesting, uh, which I did verify with a former colleague named Vladimir, is they take a shot, but they don't have a glass of vodka because that's not, that's, that's gauche. You can't do that. Right. It's shots of vodka. And, and then during dinner, ah, another round. And then they go, and then you go, boom, boom. So anyway, da, 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 and then you go back to dinner. And it's just over the course of the evening, you probably drink a bottle by yourself, as is. Russia. Delicious. Uh, but you don't pour a drink like you do in other cultures. And so I thought that was very interesting. But then I got, you know, the full tutorial on, you know, that's not proper vodka. So you, you come back and having known that information, you go to your buddy who's drinking a Tito's and Fresca and you're like, ah, savage. Yeah. <laughs> Once pre-children. God, this was the great thing about moving to London in my late twenties, like you know, in love, money in my pocket, we, you could just go on a Sunday and just, and the thing about the, the thing about, I can't speak to much more of the UK, but I, I assume it's the same, but London, there are pubs on every corner. And this is the thing that blew my mind. Like, imagine being in a city in America where there was a bar every like 20 paces. But that's sort of the situation over here. It's it's a whole different culture. And we would we had one epic Sunday, I remember, where we just like started walking and we stopped at the bars we liked. And then we kind of kept going. And we ended up at the end of this random Sunday at a Polish restaurant that that my husband knew about up in North London. And and we just had pierogies and vodka. <laughs> and they bring you. The, the coldest, all the shot glasses are kept like in a freezer or in ice. So it's, it, they're frosty, cold shot glasses. And mm -hmm. then you, you choose your wine, like a flight I'm sorry, you choose your vodka, like a, a flight of vodka and, and you just take them down between your pierogies and yeah, crisp, delicious. You wouldn't even like smooth as all get out. You wouldn't even know you were shooting vodka, like the vodka you and I would know from like nasty, um, uh, what with ice luges remember that shit mm -hmm. <laughs> that like burn your throat on the way down classy yeah like really good baltic authentic vodka ice cold 
Yes, Baltic. Mm. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I'd like that. I'd like to get back into that. Any any of the Baltic states. Yeah. Well, the other thing they have here, which is very sad that you don't have, is the Eurovision Song Contest. Do you know about the Eurovision Song Contest? (laughs) Yeah, didn't Will Ferrell make a movie about that? Well, they did, and I haven't seen it because I'm a little salty about it. It's a great thing. And, um, (laughs) And we celebrate it. We really celebrate it. my household by buying a a foodstuff or a beverage to represent every nation that's featured that year. There's about there, I think there are 20 acts every year across Europe and then into um, Russia, Israel, and Australia is now a part of it inexplicably. And, um, and so we'll get like, you know, French cheese and Spanish uh, uh, Parma ham or Spanish, <laughs> uh, you know, chorizo and Italian, whatever, uh, wine. And we represent every nation we can in, in chocolate, meat, cheese, foodstuffs, and then just cover the Baltics in vodka. And then whenever that, whoever comes up onto the stage, whoever's next to perform, you have to eat or drink, whatever represents that country. It's a great night. Let me tell you. That sounds and, like fun. Um, yeah, it's the best. But uh, I don't even know where I was going with the story. Just that like we eat and drink a lot when the Eurovision is on. Well, you reminded me of a trip that I took one time that was very pleasing that I would like to go back to that I recommend to anybody listening to this conversation is Epcot Center. <laughs> Are you familiar? It doesn't familiar? exist anymore, does it? Uh, it does. And it does. If you're familiar with Epcot Center, it is Disney World adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it is not formally part of Disney World. You cannot get to it from Disney World. You got to leave Disney World, jump on the monorail, and then make it to Epcot. And Epcot has <laughs> that gigantic, weird-looking geodesic dome that's got the big uh, 3D video that talks about the future, which never happened. But right. the really Tell fun about part it. about it is there's this gigantic swamp lake in the middle. And all around the outer rim is just a bunch of pavilions celebrating different countries. Yes. And you can go into each of these pavilions and they all have that uh, quaint American rose-tinted glass perspective of what that country does. But the good part about it is what we did when we went there was we had an exhibition we had to go to, which was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And we said, let's take an extra day. And we left the convention center in Orlando and we went to Epcot. And we started at Mexico and we did a drink for every country. Yeah. (laughs) So in Mexico, it's tequila. And then you go Mm -hmm. to Sweden and it's vodka. And then you go to, and you stop at, you stop, (laughs) you stop at the United States for the gigantic turkey leg. Right. (laughs) And then from there you go to whatever's left. It's Britain and you have a pint in Britain. And then you always end in Canada. And by Canada, you're so drained (laughs) because you have to have had, 10 drinks by now and they're different drinks. Yeah. But I remember it was, it was a rollicking good time. And by the time you get back on the monorail <laughs> to take you back to the taxi stand, to take you back to the hotel, everything is the most wonderful. Like life is <laughs> precious. Everything about it is wonderful. There's no bad days. No. So after you, after you drink the world at Epcot and I highly recommend it to anybody to go and check it out because it was enormous fun. I think you have to Google Epcot. I think it's closed, Dana. I think the pandemic filled Epcot. Well, maybe closed for now. 
Okay. Maybe we can bring it back. Well, perhaps I will do my own Epcot. You got me thinking now. I got to pull up a Eurovision thing now and do the. Dude, it's. I can't even describe it. It's the best thing about not living in America. (laughs) That and free healthcare. Well, that's a good segue because I would like to know if 2008 is the year, then you're staring down the barrel of 13 years as an expat. Yeah. uh, What's your take on it? Gosh, it's, it's funny because it was never anything I like aspired to. I wasn't one of these crazy Anglophiles in high school that was like, I want to be in England. I mean, uh, never. No, like you I fell was, in love. Oh, well, that's true. I was on a path. I was, I grew up in the Valley, the San Fernando Valley. I valley went to girl. school in Santa Barbara. I came back to Los Angeles. I, I got a, you know, I put, I got a job. I was on a path and, and I had all my, you know, all my friends and family were right there and there was nothing that would have indicated that I would leave America. And, um, yeah, I met this guy and I was, it was, you know, it was total right place, right time. I was, I was old enough and established enough in my career to, to feel confident that I could move to another country but I was not established enough where I didn't, where I felt like I couldn't leave what I had. And, um, and being exposed to London at that age, I was 26 when I met Dunstan, you know, 27, 28, when I I was traveling to London to visit him. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was traveling back and forth to visit me and gosh, and just suddenly like having the realization that it's a big world and, and having spent my entire life in Southern California um, and working in the entertainment industry and, and sitting in that false sense of like, this is the center of the universe. The bubble. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then being exposed to the world outside of that and being like, Oh Jesus, like, no, (laughs) Um, you know, the, the 15 square miles between, Western and Santa Monica Boulevard is like not the end of my world. Like, um, yeah, it was, it was mine. It was, yeah, it, it opened my mind and I took the plunge and I moved out. And well, in London, when you're, when you're young and as I said, in love and has to have some money in your pocket is a great place to be. It I was great. London. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, and it was tough. I mean, it was a real different when I, so this is, yeah. So you got a slight language barrier. Um, which is interesting. Different. Uh, cuisine's definitely different. Weather is definitely different. Um, metric system. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's funny that you wouldn't expect there to be real cultural differences but there are, and that's, it made the first few years. I, I did live here pretty tough because hmm. you aren't expecting it to be that different. I, I remember, um, God, someone had said, I can't remember who, like, it would be easier if you just like moved to Russia and you expected everything to be completely different, uh. but it's, it's a bit more insidious when you go and you think like, well, we all like vaguely look the same. We all vaguely yep. talk the same. We all vaguely have the same customs, whatnot. 
Um, but it, 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 it was in those first years, I remember the very kind of like subtle cultural differences that, that were, that were difficult to navigate because for instance, finding a job, I had, I graduated from college. I worked at a theater in Santa Barbara. I moved to LA, you know, with stars in my eyes. I threw money at headshots and acting classes for mm, 15 months, you know, realized after working at restaurants, like really quickly, I was not going to be an actor for a living. Um, was lucky to have good friends who got me a job with their agent. And I, uh, I parlayed that job into another job. And I, so I was at a talent agency for about 18 months. And then I worked for um, a reality television producer. And I, like I said, I was on a path, like it was a good, you know, I was in the business. Um, and when I moved to the UK, I thought those skills would be easily transferable to film TV agency, you know, over here. But I went in, I kind of, I kind of lucked into a job um, at a film company as an assistant to like the CEO and the chairman. And, and then like a month after I started, they went into administration they went bankrupt, basically this film company, which I got through a, a headhunter, a, a recruitment agency. And so then I had to find another job and I was interviewing and I kept coming up against these really like just mind boggling issues. I was told for one job, I was too young and too ambitious which being from LA is like being told you're too rich and too thin. <laughs> like what? Um, I was in an interview once, I'll never forget it, at Sony Distribution. <clears throat> and the head of Sony Distribution stopped me in the middle of the interview and said, I have to tell you, your confidence is off-putting. Ah, uh, too much. I mean, and... I was, I don't know, I guess I was 28, 29 at that age. Because you're a girl or because you're American? Because I was American. Okay. And because every fiber of coming out of LA, like, you know, you, you can't push hard enough. You can't be driven enough. Like That's Southern California in general, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can speak to that. Your whole, the whole ethos is, you know, there's 20 people behind you. Take what you want. Like, get what you want. So I would sit down in these interviews in the UK and be like, yeah, yeah, I see myself doing this and I can do this and I'm going to be this person. And in five years, you know, I'm going to run this fucking place. And, and <laughs> you would just, you would go in with this energy and it's, and it, I think it's, I think it's evolved now, but at the time, definitely there were like, no, no, we want you to schedule phone, like phone calls and meetings and get tea, like calm down, you know? And and that was really tough because that was something I didn't, you know, everything I had learned to that point was go awesome. in there, go in there with that heavy energy. And um, that was maybe what worked in Los Angeles. And it did not work in London at the time. And I would just cry in elevators on the way home because oh. I was not, you know, I was just getting rejected. And I was lucky enough to meet a, you know. <laughs> what I affectionately term a stockbroker come wannabe film producer. And I've worked with him for 11 years because he was the only one that would give me a job. Well, that's a happy ending. Yeah, it's all right. It's been a slog. It's been a very, 
circuitous route to um, eventually like producing theater. There's been a lot of stops and starts along the way and a lot of weird false starts in film and TV and, you know, just trying to navigate. But you have a vocation within the industry for which you have an educational training. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. 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 I've definitely, I've worked in, it's the only job I've ever had um, has been in the business. Not good on you, sister. So many of us don't do that. Yeah. Well, you find other places to put it, that energy, don't you? That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um, the the Southern California, because um, it's probably mostly Los Angeles because Orange County is Los Angeles adjacent, um, just north of Los Angeles County. I don't know if you go right into Ventura or if you want to count the, the, the valley as its own county, which mm-hmm. I think it probably should be. San Fernando Valley is, is an animal in itself. Uh, but those three areas... Uh, going from going from Irvine to probably as far north as Thousand Oaks, I think, qualify as this kind of Southern California region where everything is hustle, hustle, hustle. Get it done. Get in. Do it fast. Do it now. Multitask. All of that. And um, I know exactly what you're talking about because it's not just show business. I think it's everything. Like everybody in there in that region is house poor, so they all have a side hustle. They're all doing. Uh, jewelry or face cream or essential oils or handbags or, you know, man cave accessories. And it's because you can't afford to live because that area is so overly inflated. So uh, my buddy who moved out here before I did, he calls it hustle culture. Mm. And what he says is everybody out here, meaning the Phoenix area, he says everybody out here does things slower. He says, there's no traffic on the roads. You know, to them, a 20-minute drive is eternity, which was a real big transition, is, oh, that's like 20 minutes away. And I'm like, what? Cool. 20 minutes is five miles. Who are are you people? Yeah. Uh, But there's a genuine sense of, yeah, yeah, no, we'll get there. And they like to go out to restaurants a lot here. You know, they've got money to spend. So I completely agree with what you're saying about that that culture of got to get it, got to get it. and when you bring that out here, you can start to see the California influence of things are cooking up, businesses moving much faster, people are more ambitious. Uh, I wouldn't call it a disease. It's a flavor. Yeah. But uh, it definitely must have been a shock for stuffy British types at the time. Yeah. Here's a question for you. Do your children have an accent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ah! <laughs> Mommy. So you're the one. Yeah, yeah. I'm the one. They do really good. It's, I mean, it's Does it work being the one with the accent? I know. It's weird. Uh, Mom's a foreigner. Yeah. (laughs) 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 But then I also have like, my, my youngest has blue eyes. I think that's more weird. Like I have, like, I don't know why that's such a, fucking issue for me my husband has blue eyes but like my oldest my first has brown eyes she looks like me and I can like see myself in her but then it's weird to look at my younger daughter who's blonde who's blonde and has blue eyes and be like who are you (laughs) you you know she doesn't I don't know if if she and I were walking around on the street would people be like oh yeah that's your daughter I don't know um and especially now when we open our mouths because yeah no my kids go to they go to a 
school with British people and they were born in Britain and they speak with British accents for sure. They can do, do they have American. the ability to do an American accent. Like they mimic. Yes, you? but it's, but I'll tell you, it's more from television. Uh, it's not from me. It's more from TV. It's more from the, the cat they find on Netflix. That is the great oh irony. The British actors do Americans so much better. Yeah. Than Americans. You think of first. some really, really good American characters and they're usually a Brit. Well, who knew that, that Damien, what's his name? Dominic West, that McNulty was British. Who knew that Stringer Bell was British? <sighs> Blew my mind. Oh, why isn't he a James Bond yet? Wow. <laughs> I was yeah. thinking of, uh, I was thinking of Hugh Laurie because he was yeah. house forever and he's got a very distinct, um, I don't want to say North Atlantic, but it's not New Jersey. It's no. just kind of a, a generic Northeastern. And then you hear him talk. And I remember talking to, uh, our mutual friend, Mr. Kenya, and, uh, mm. he would say they would do a take and he would be in character. He would be house. Yeah. And then cut, we're wrapped for the day. And then he would turn around and he would say, Eddie, how are you, mate? I haven't seen you. And just the, the dichotomy of Very bouncing posh. back and forth between the two of them. Uh, and then you see him on screen, you're like, that dude's American. But yeah. he's not. No. Cumber yeah. Biatch has a pretty good one. Um, Henry Cavill's got a good one. I mean, you know I'm a comic book nerd, but that dude's talented. All right. There's a few of them. Paul Bettany. He always plays oh, American. Yeah. Oh, I love Paul Bettany. If I were to yeah. do, if I were to do a voice, I would want, I would want Paul Bettany's voice. <laughs> You've got your own voice. Your own voice is pretty good. Well, I like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate the radio compliment, but in terms of, if you're going to put on a, a voice that Bettany would be my British voice. Mm. Well, I mean, and this is funny. I, I would have said before I moved to the UK that I could do a British accent. And now that I've lived here for 12 years, I don't know that I would even attempt it because it's very regional. It's very sectionalized and they can see the fuck right through you. <laughs> and yeah, so I got a wake up call on that one from, from two girls in Bristol that I used to work with. And they said, can you do a British accent? And I said, this is a trap and I'm yeah. not going to fall into yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah, where in Britain? It. Yeah. And they, well, as long as you don't do Dick Van Dyke, sorry, I, won't, I promise I won't do Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Said, I won't do, I won't do the throwaway Cockney, but you got to give me, you want Manchester, you want it's Liverpool tough. Tough. because I know they're different. And yeah. after a while I said, you know what, just let me listen to one of you for about an hour. Yeah. I said, then give me a shot. And, uh, that I think makes people really uncomfortable <laughs> when you're a mimic because yeah. it gets really, really creepy. Everybody likes to think that their voice is singular and it's not. No. Um, one of my, one of my favorite ex coworkers is from Atlanta, uh, nay Alabama. And five minutes into the conversation, yeah. you see you fucking doing me again. Sorry. You got it. <laughs> Wait, so wait, this is a good segue. So you've, you don't, you've given up your day job or your day job was given up for you. Yeah. Let's go there. <laughs> Fine. Yes. Good. Um, lockdowns caused a 93% drop in revenue for the industry yeah. that I was in. And, and is that still the family for, business? Am I right? No, no. Well, 
not really. Um, it's become less of the family business more and more over time. And then with my departure, it really isn't the family business. My brother-in-law is still there and he's doing very well, but he doesn't consider it a family business. Like he doesn't want his kids getting into it. As soon as he's done, that's it. We're going to wipe our hands of this company and walk away. Wow. Um, the Japanese are an interesting culture singularly, and they would like it that way. Mm. So I'll try and be as concise about this as I can. The Japanese like to touch things, right? So they love the iPhone because it's a thing. But Japanese in general don't do software well. You can't touch software. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So whenever you think about Japan, you think about elegant hardware construction. Right. They make things. They make cars. They make gadgets. They make stereos, sex toys. I mean, they weird, weird things that you can touch, tangible okay. value. Um, you can perfect software, but again, it's it's characters on a screen. Ineffable, you can perfect yeah. an engraving. You can perfect a painting. You can perfect pottery. So in that particular culture, the building of things, which is the concept of uh, manazukuri, which is to make with your hands, that's the culture. Nice. So okay. if you have engineering cred or you're any kind of a designer or any kind of person involved in product and engineering, that's a core kind of thing. I was the strategic storyteller. I was the marketer. And to them, they went, well, we got a slice and we love them, but we don't need a storyteller. Um, they're wrong. They're wrong. Everybody needs, everybody needs a marketer. The, the one thing everybody you cannot, one thing you cannot do without is a story because nobody will buy what you have to sell. You know, the irony of business is if you just make a really great thing, people will find you. No, they won't. No, you have to tell the story and people have mm. to be interested in why you, and that's a story and that's marketing. So, um, my time there was done, I think. Yeah. I had run it, it had run its course. And, you know, I like traveling. I really, really like traveling. I like culture. I like language. I like learning words. I like to look in somebody's face when you nail a traditional greeting. Um, As a gaijin, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. And, you, you know, when you, when you walk in, so there's a serious problem with racism in most countries um our country obviously but when you walk into a country where it's very clear that you don't belong you get a very distinct sense of what it's like so when you start doing customs like approach a chair from the left side bow when you enter a room open and close an email with a specific statement with a specific punctuation they notice that was fun um yeah getting all the Europeans in a room and getting them to make a, a decision that everybody's happy with. That was an art. That was mm -hmm. fun. Um, but I could do away with 11 o'clock at night conference mm -hmm. calls. I could mm -hmm. do away with, uh, I could do away with remote work because I was doing remote work for two years before the lockdown. Wow. So when the lockdown came, it was like, great, nothing changes except I don't get to travel anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the final, uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Is it? I got to tell you, looking for a job sucks. Yeah. I, and I was going to ask because my husband was made redundant at the end of November last year. Oh. Which is Sorry the to hear that. polite English way to say laid off. 
Um, and he was in uh, digital marketing uh, business outsourcing, essentially. Yeah, he's did, my people. Did a lot of, yeah, did a lot of work in India. And, you know, had been, uh, yeah, the writing was on the wall. He, he never really, he didn't love his job anymore. And um, I think the moment the pandemic hit, he knew it was coming. So it was kind of a, a slow burn until the end of November. And then, you know, kind of took December off and, and hit it hard in, in January looking for a job and, and still hasn't found anything. And I think. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Really believed he would have by now. Um, but, you know, we're lucky we're, you know, financially di- because we weren't commuting and our kid, uh, was out of nursery in September, you know, have, have, has saved a bit and like financially it's not, it's not a major strain yet. <laughs> we're getting to, to get to that stage, but, but I worry about, and I wonder if you can speak to this. I worry about his, you know, self sense of self as a man who has worked consistently for, you know, 30 years. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's, he's about seven years older than we are, but has had a job and consistently worked. And ha- this probably has been the longest period of time that he hasn't had been paid to do a job. And, and I don't know, it's given him pause to be able to think about what he really wants to do. Um, obviously there is constraints in that because he is the breadwinner in the way that my salary will always be, um, less than his because of the the sector I'm in. And, you know, we've got a mortgage and two kids and I think he'll always feel as, as a man, maybe too, he'll always feel pressure to, to, to make money to support us. And And what is that, how, what does that feel like? Is that a, is that a, is that a real strain? Can you, can you share those He'll crack. thoughts and feelings with your, with your, with your partner? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had, uh, I had a really bad day about two days ago. Um, if he's strong, he won't break, mm-hmm. but he will bend and he will crack. And yeah the the lockdowns and the pandemic and the work from home and all of that has done what I would say is probably the biggest wake up call to everybody in terms of what am I doing? And so you start to reflect on things like work, you start to reflect on things like life. Uh, it strengthened my marriage, I would say. Uh, I have an amazingly talented and successful wife who's running her own business and she is rocking the shit. And wow. we came out here with California real estate money. So yeah. we're not hurting by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but there is an emotional strain of asking between 10 and 20 times a day for someone to acknowledge you mm. and getting about a 5% response, which is 100% no. Wow. And so there are times when I'm applying to up to 20 jobs a day. And I hear from five of them. And the answer is always boilerplate. Wow. Amazing. Not interested. Yeah. And, you know, you want to try and take some of that as 
okay, great. I'm getting acknowledged because some of them just don't respond to you at all, which I think is horrible. You know, yeah. they ought to just say, we're not accepting any more applications because they're taking about 250 applications on average for every open position. And you hear a lot in the news about how, you know, they can't find workers. Well, they can't find entry-level workers. They can't find people for less than $20 an hour. Yeah. At the professional sector, um, our age and a little bit older, you get people that are retiring if they're in their 60s because they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't see any real tangible benefit in sticking around for the next three years. So people in their 60s are just calling, mailing it in saying, see, ya, I'm out of here. But I would say anywhere between 35 to 60, these are the coveted high performance earning years. And there's nothing. You got to be extremely specialized. So what I'm finding is I don't think that there's age discrimination for us. I mean, we're, we're right at the center of these are the types of people we want. You've got experience and you've got a runway. Uh, and they're, all kinds of places that I can apply. So I'm not just limited to Arizona. I can apply anywhere, Mm. but your level of skills, you really got to be that purple tailed squirrel that people are looking for. So if I don't have specific experience with a portfolio of work in a given area, they've got enough people that they can just go, well, we'll we'll just put him in the database and Mm. maybe if we need something later, we'll come back for him. So, um, if Hubby's got a very specific skill set, he's good to go. He'll yeah. find somebody looking for that specific skill set. I didn't have that. I was the sixth man. I was the one that did whatever needed to be done. I was the one that made myself indispensable to that organization. So if you looked at my resume and you looked at anything I did, whatever that company needed, I was an expert at that company. I wasn't necessarily an expert at the job. So the way I reflect on it is... I have to try and find a company exactly like that Hmm. where I'll be just as useful. And how many Japanese hardware manufacturers are there in the United States that are exporting product? And so that's one of your search points, but I just spent, I spent an entire life in that industry. You know, I look at my resume and it says 18 plus years. Well, my career can vote. So I want to do something else. Yeah. Uh, I have the benefit of a strong relationship and open communication. So I get to do things like this. I get to do a passion project. I've gotten paid to do voiceover. I've gotten paid to write articles and magazines. I have a podcast. This is fun. I'm enjoying this. But you do get to a point right. where it's like, okay, I've, I've played. I got yeah. to get back to work. Right. Uh, Cobra is going to run out end of September. Mm. That's scary. So at some point you need a day job. I don't know that I could figure out how to monetize all of these fun little things that quickly. Yeah. So if you have the means search for the exact, but Mm. at some point you might get desperate. I mean, I have a master's of business administration. I have 209,000 frequent flyer miles. I've got 31 stamps on my passport and I just applied for a 30 hour part-time bank teller position. How do you reconcile that? You can't. So be there Yeah. when he needs a hug, but dust him off and kick him back out. That's the advice that I have for anyone listening that may be in a similar situation is, you know, 
you're not a failure till you stop trying. And it's rough. That's, that's great. No, that's what I needed to hear because as a, as a, as a partner, you know, I don't want to hound him. I want to be available to him, as you said, when he, when he needs it. But I also just, I want him to find something that he wants too. I don't want him to just get a job because he needs to get a job and have it be something he hates. But yeah. Uh, you got to do the 5149. A job is better than no job, even if yeah. you hate it. Oh, that's true. So that, is, that is my advice um, to anybody listening and to, and to him is get something. Yeah. Because I've spent the last six months getting really good at applying for jobs. Yeah. And it's like auditioning. And you remember mm. what that grind is like. It's, you know, I remember, I remember our professor saying this analogy, which really worked for me. He says, you guys got to think of this in terms of baseball. If you get up to the bat and you get two out of 10, pretty good. If you get three out of 10, you're really good. And if you get four out of 10, you're the best baseball player that ever lived. <laughs> so it's, it's really quantity, which is why I'm not looking for anything specific. If the job title is similar and I've got 75 to 85% of the experience required, boom, mm -hmm. I'm in. And if I get an interview, showtime. But it really is about quantity because all this stuff now, and I don't know what the... I can't speak to the UK job market, but all this stuff is ruled by software now. So it's all keywords and algorithms and it's all, how can you paint yourself as the exact person that this company is looking for? And that's the game. You play the game. Yeah. That's exactly what my, what Dunstan was saying, that, that you have to essentially rewrite your, your resume every time you apply for a job to hit those keywords and right. phrases and so we went back and forth. Um, I, I paid a resume writer slash business coach um, to rewrite my resume. And he said, he said, what have you been doing? You've been copy pasting the job description into your resume and, and tweaking it. I said, yeah, he said, stop doing that. He says, you got to get through the applicant tracking system, which is with it as the ATS. He says, you got to get through the ATS. But on the other side of the ATS is a human. And a human doesn't want to reread the job description. He said, so let's figure out ways to get you through the automated robot filter so that what comes out on the other yeah. side is human. And um, it was dramatic after that. It was, it was mm -hmm. night and day in terms of the types of responses that I was getting because at least if you get a no, it provides closure. But if you yeah. don't get a no, that's just the worst feeling. And anybody going through a job search is going to deal with symptoms of depression. Oh, yeah, they're who you are. I've, uh, I've been very public about that in my writing. And even on this podcast is if you don't think you get anxiety, you're lying. Yeah. But how it manifests itself, you can play with that. Mm. So that's, I hope I answered your question, but it's, it's a group effort. Uh, yeah. Because at some point, you know, my partner's dealing with her own things too, as I'm sure you're dealing with your own things. And then you got the kids and then you got the house and then you got masks and social distancing. And we just moved into this uh, neighborhood. Our house was finished two months before lockdown. So we don't know any of our neighbors. Yes. 
So oh we're in a situation now where it's like we see these people and we wave to them, but we don't know. I don't know who they are. How are we supposed to meet them? Yeah. Oh, the you guy down the street. You haven't been in their pool. Haven't been in their house. Haven't had any kind of social gatherings with them. I did an elbow bump with one guy one day. Hey, man. Yeah, you're three houses down. Awesome. I'm so and so. We're from California. Uh, Wait, you just stuff- moved. You just moved to Phoenix two months before the lockdown. We moved in June of 2019. Wow. And we lived in a rental while our house was being finished. Mm-hmm. We got the keys on November 1st, and we had an empty house Christmas. Yeah. Because we had a container from California. And then little things like shutters on the windows and area rugs and furniture. And like, we didn't put shit on the walls. And then, so we made through that. And then January was our first, we live here now month. And we were hearing rumblings of China in November because my colleagues over in Japan were like, something's going on. And so we were hearing rumblings of it over there. And then by February, everybody started talking about it. And then by March, shut it down. I had friends coming out in the middle of March to come to, uh, to come to spring training. We were all going to do an Airbnb. We were all going to go watch baseball. Like it was a thing. I was like, my people. And then boom, cancel the flight, cancel everything. Yeah. So you got to take all that into account. You got to bundle it all together. God. So it's not even like the kids have neighbor kids. They can go ride bikes with. They do. They do. There is that element because kids are, I don't, this, this can be a, a, a politically dangerous subject, but kids don't seem to be susceptible to it. Mm. You know, if you can't gather enough kids under 12 to do a clinical trial because they don't get sick, then they don't get sick. So we let the kids go out and frolic and have fun, whatever, because most of them burn right through it. Yeah. So it's, it's a pandemic for old and weak people. And in our country, your old country, all you have are fat and (laughs) medically crippled people. Uh, It's a horrible thing to say, but you know, pre-existing conditions is normal. For America. Yeah. Don't cry for America. Yeah. Well, okay. That's a nice segue. So, so here we are, we knew each other when we were 19, 20, 21 years old. Yep. Now we're 40 years old. (laughs) So precisely. And we we haven't seen each other much in between. I have to say. Precisely 20 years ago was the end of our college education Mm -hmm. for the most part, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. About 19. And here we are. And, and what, and how, you know, you are where you are, and it's not where I anticipate you thought you'd be, um, where I've ended up is certainly not where I thought I'd be, but, but it's okay, right? Like you just get on with your life. I was about Maybe where I thought better. I would be in September. Right. Um, I have to say that I'm in a much better place now than I think I was in September, albeit without a primary income source. Mm. And that's a funny thing. What I like about it is I'm much closer to my children. I'm not saddled by that ambition we talked about. Yeah. The career should fuel the life. You always say it, you know, you work to live, you don't live to work, but it's like, do you really believe that? Yeah. When you're involved in a career and you have some upward mobility. 
um, you get a chance to take a step back and understand that. What I did really like was the curtain got pulled back on how much work childcare is. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I hope that's the next shoe to drop around the world is people understanding the, the thankless amount of labor that goes into child rearing and, and household management. Uh, I have a lot more empathy for my wife and others because of that now. Yeah. Um, so kind of what you were saying earlier is, you know, to be, to be the man, to be the provider, to work, you know, you'd come home and you'd be exhausted and you'd say to yourself, well, I worked all day. I'm tired. And, you know, you look across to somebody who's been home all day and like, what do you think I did? Well, you know, you did laundry and soap operas and you probably drank wine. And it's like, no, it's, if you have children under 10, it's fucking Vietnam. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. And I think part of the conversation about being young and ambitious and, and, and being of that mindset that's maybe unique to Southern California or maybe America in general, you know, that there, there are so little boundaries. I remember being in my twenties and working in the television industry and it was like, you know, I got there at nine and I stayed there till eight. And if someone called me at 11, I took the call. And, and if, and if I was still there at 10 PM, cause I hadn't got something done and I was crying over my computer, like that was standard operating procedure. Too bad. You know? yep. Too bad. And, and, and there was no, like those, those boundaries weren't there. And once I had kids, you know, there's just not enough of you to, to, to parcel out and having to suddenly establish boundaries that I was not, I think it's generational too. I think we hear a lot of shit about like younger, you know, people were in the workforce now in their twenties and early thirties who just have much better boundaries about like, cool. I turn my phone off uh, or I, you know, I turn my phone off at 6 PM or I don't take my laptop with me on vacation. That's crazy to me. <laughs> like, I come from, that's not, that was not, that's not my experience, but I had to, I have had to, I haven't perfected it yet, really learn to, to, to create boundaries between my working life and my life when I'm with my family, because otherwise I'm a monster. There's a direct correlation between like I am to my children and the shitty email I got two minutes beforehand. Yeah, that's a bitch. And it, and I thought it was, I thought it was a good thing when I was a young mom. No, I wasn't a young mom when I had young kids and I was working and I was multitasking when I was new mom. Yeah, you're right. Cause my ass was in my thirties when I had kids. But, um, when I was a new mom and I was multitasking and doing emails and feeding and walking and, you know, parking, uh, but also trying to, to be available for my work. And I thought that was like cool and the way it should be, but it just ate away at my soul and made me cranky and mean. And it meant I was doing two things badly. And, and if, if we can, if a generation of people can come away from what has happened and and think like, I really learned how to balance those two things. When I'm at work, I'm at work. And when I'm at home, I'm at home. 
and work at home became the same place. So I really had to think about what's work and what's yeah. my family. Absolutely. Yeah. Then that's a good thing because it's hard to do both at the same time. Something else that I think about along the lines of what you're saying is we left school in 2002 at the end of .com and at the end of 9-11. So when we left school, that was a recession. That was a downturn. And new grads, there were two, 2000 to 2003, I'd say it's fair to say. Hmm. When you get thrown out into the workforce in a situation like that, you're going to have to struggle and scrape and be ambitious because you're going to have to figure it out. You have to put food on the table. You have to put a roof over your head or you have to find some semblance of who are you now? Because yeah. in your 20s after, after college, that's one of the largest ID, identity crisis periods of your life. But then by the time we were in our late 20s and we were just starting to get a foothold in the workforce, the Great Recession happened. Mm-mm. And that kicked the shit out of us. So okay. we survived that. We got into our 30s. We got the, we got the 2.5 kids and the picket fence and the mortgage. And then this comes along right yeah. at the beginning of the primary earning years for most people is the early 40s. Right. And so you think about ambition. Yeah, we were, we're Los Angeles kids. But part of that ambition just comes from right within that kind of 1978 to 1982 window. You had to hustle. Because yeah. you weren't a Gen X and you weren't a millennial. Um, we were, we remember life before the internet. We remember life before, before cell phones. Like I got a cell phone. Maddie dragged me down to the AT&T store in 2000 to get a cell phone. You remember <laughs> life before cell phones? Like you just didn't. Oh yeah. So what? Yeah. yeah. I remember. Somebody, I, I remember, called you and you weren't home. Like, oh, I wasn't home. Sorry. Yeah. I remember walking. It was summer after we graduated and I walked to the T there was a T-Mobile store in that strip mall in Goleta where mm-hmm. like the Kmart and the Cajun kitchen was or whatever it was called. Oh, um, Cajun kitchen. Yeah. And I got my first T-Mobile. I, I, I spent up for the flip phone <laughs> in the year 2002. I got my first cell phone, which is nuts because I was walking my kids home from school and the two like 10 and two 12 year olds behind us had cell phones. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus, <laughs> what are we going to so think? Do? I think about that. I think about that. Those are, those are transition years. And you know, if you bring in somebody that's in their mid thirties, maybe they have a similar experience. So if you bring in somebody that's in their mid to late forties, maybe they have a similar experience, but without a doubt, the people that I talk to that are within our general age, Within within a couple of years of each other, they they have that general sense of I got thrown out into the world and I get yeah. the shit kicked out of me, and then I started to get some momentum in my career and I get the shit kicked out of me, and <laughs> now that I have a mortgage and a family, I'm getting the shit kicked out of me. Yeah, and uh, there's probably parallels to other generations, but I, I get the sense that that's that's what you're seeing now. Mm. We'll be all right. Well, of course we're gonna be. But all it right, is cause weird because I'm not a millennial. Awesome. I'm not a millennial, but we like are Xennials, I, I think is the term. I never wanted to be Gen Z. I never felt not Gen Z, sorry. I never felt Gen X. But 
certainly more now than ever do I want to claim Gen X because I'm not a millennial. We learned cell phones. We weren't born of them. We learned social media. We weren't born of them. Um, I remember so my third year, which I think was my first year in the, in the BFA, I was roommates with Uncle Polly, and he pulled up this thing called Google on his computer. Wow. And I said, what's that? He goes, oh, it's a search engine. Go on. That's Jeeves, yo. <laughs> yeah, it was Jeeves. Or remember Lycos with that chocolate lab? You know, all that stuff was new. So we, we learned all that stuff in real time yeah. as young adults. So that's the term that I've seen as exennials because we're cuspers. Yeah. yeah. Cuspers. How'd we get so old? Hopefully better. Yeah. Hopefully better like the fine wines that you like to drink with your husband. <laughs> Lady Catelyn of the British Isles, I had a wonderful time with you today. Aw, thank you, Dee. Me too. This place is dead anyway, man.